O Christ, our God, who commanded the disciples to make disciples of all nations of the world, we pray that your Holy Spirit may come upon us, that we may be evangelists in this world to those who are around us, spreading Christ's love to those who are in need. Amen. So I'm going to try and multitask, because someone asked about, do you have photos? And I don't know. They're on my phone, and we'll see if we get them. But for now... Did anyone have any questions or thoughts about Judgment Day? About the Gospel? Yes? Well, I'm confused about what's supposed to happen to souls after death. I mean, ah, that's a good question. Are you floating around waiting for somebody's prayers? So the question is what happens to souls after they have left this life? Who wants to answer that? Anyone? <laughs> um, so... The, the, the short answer is uh, the church does not spend a whole lot of time thinking about that because what is important is right now and then what we read in the gospel. Right now and then the judgment day. So there are um, orthodox writers and saints who have offered different um, descriptions and ideas of things, but none of those have been universally um, made the dogma of the church in terms of uh, this is what happens to everyone. Those descriptions generally are about having a foretaste of the impending judgment. So for those who have lived a life of unrighteousness, that they would have a foretaste of hell. And for those who have lived a virtuous life, they would have a foretaste of the heavenly blessedness. Um, but that's... Uh, as far as I would like to go into it, there are, suffice it to say, there are big books about this, but um, I, we have to ask ourselves why we're curious about that. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but for any of us, why are we curious about that? Because, in fact, it has nothing to do with our um, path towards salvation. But it is something where we do kind of wonder, you know, like time kind of disappears because we're no longer within the created world in the same way. So how do we experience time? We don't even know that, whether it's just a, a flash between we die and then we're standing before Christ at the judgment seat. So um, that's a realm that um, I think the description I've given is, is as much as I'd like to give. I don't know if that's... Sorry, that might not be very satisfactory, but uh, <coughs> yeah. Yeah, question. Yeah, okay, yeah. So some of these things, not so much about what we experience, but about our ontology, who we are. So we cannot do anything for our salvation once we've died. Yes, so, so a couple of things about that. One is that we have the ability to have the impact upon a person's salvation through our prayers. So that's one thing. And they have no impact upon their salvation once any of us have no impact once we have departed this life. So everything is in that respect fixed. Um, another description that I've heard that I think is a, a, a poignant visual for us, although 
I don't remember exactly what the source is, so I wouldn't put this anywhere near dogma. But our life on this earth is a life of purifying ourselves from the passions. And um, if we have passions that we still struggle with and we die, we have no body with which to act out those passions. So that's a taste of hell in that respect. Because imagine hunger, you know, like gluttony kind of hunger, because you have no more body at that point. But that desire for that is still there, that those passions are still there with us because we don't fundamentally change who we are. And so, um, so that's very central to why God gave us a body is because our body is our partner towards salvation. So it's only with our bodies that we are able to combat the passions that are within us. And that's partly why that process ends when our body is no longer with us until the general resurrection. So... But yeah. How do you understand passages in the Psalms that talk about show the Yeah. There's uh, Yeah. So um there are some Orthodox um, writers. Um, I, I'm first on the top of my head is uh, Father Thomas Hopko. Um, has a, a nice podcast that's about the difference between Hades and Shale. And we might say there's a difference between Hades and Shale. Um, so there's something about what was before Christ's death and resurrection and what is now that's different. And so those passages are referring to what was. But in fact, Shale, um, the, the word Shale, if I'm, I'm trying to paraphrase what Father Thomas Hopko said. In Hebrew, it, it's more about, um, it's, it's about a state rather than a location. We as humans, being physical, we always want to veer towards location. Heaven is up, hell is down, that kind of thing. And so, but the word itself in, in Hebrew is more to do with the state of a person. So Sheol is the state of those who are departed, if that makes sense. But the language in, in the Psalms and other places is very, in, if I make my bed in hell in Psalm 139, lo, you are there with me. So it, it, it's very physical in that respect, but uh, we always get into danger when we start to think about things in terms of physical locations. It's always theologically dangerous because where is that? Where is that? So I don't know. I didn't fully answer that, but suffice it to say that the descriptions of that are, are altered fundamentally in light of Christ. Yeah. How do you relate to those psalms? Yeah, because we're still going to be in a state, uh, we're still going to be in a, a, a no man's land after we die. And so in that respect, at least I'm thinking about the Psalms that are more about like, no one, no soul can praise you in shale, that kind of thing where he's like pleading, don't let me die because then I can't praise you. So those things are still very poignant to us. Um, I, I think in some sense they're, they're more freeing when we don't think of it just in terms of the shale of the Old Testament of the, the Hebrew people. Um, but it, it, uh, at least everything that all the, the psalms that are popping into my head are very much, to me, they, they, um, I can associate them very well with 
whatever life is like after death. That it's this place of sort of stasis. It's um, a place where things are different, where we're not able to behave in the same way that we were, both towards praise and also towards sinning. So I don't know, is there more of a struggle that you're um, describing or experiencing in that? Okay. I guess that... Yeah, the, the short answer would be broaden, broaden what that is, to be the experience of those who have departed this life. So, which, in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there has to be a location for those bodies. We just don't know where that is. Yeah. So the question was, yeah, about the resurrection of the bodies. Yeah, the body is very physical. And um, we, can, we can draw out what we know about the resurrected body from Christ. So there's something about it that's different because the disciples and uh, Mary Magdalene didn't recognize him at first. But then they did recognize him. So, and then that Christ entered rooms without opening doors. So there's something about the resurrected body that's not the same as this flesh and bones body, but it is still physical. It's very clear in our, in our dogma that we have a bodily resurrection. So, and um, it is, without getting too far into this, it is a body that is related to the body that we have. It's not simply like our body decays and disappears and he gives us this totally different body. It's somehow related. And again, we don't really know exactly what that looks like or how that is. But it's not that um, there's like body 1.0 and body 2.0. But rather that somehow that our, our physical creation is recreated in God. So... But all of this is touching on things we don't know much about, so I'm hesitant in all of it. But they're good questions. What other? And forgive me, I, I, I have to also profess my ignorance. I'll only speak about things that I, I somehow have learned or know, and there is a lot in this realm that I don't know. There are, there are a lot of other writings that I haven't read and things. Yeah. Some people... Yeah. Okay, so uh, the question is about cremation and burial. And the church is pretty straightforward about that. Like how I described that our body is our partner in our salvation, because it's through our bodies that we can combat the passions and become sanctified. So um, because this is the greatest gift that God has given us, it is something that we are always to treat with great holiness and reverence. And so cremation would not... Now, that said, um, even more so cremation as any of us understand it here in America. Because cremation here in America is very much a defiling of the body. Um, but cremation, suffice it to say, has never been. And there was, um, in, in Roman times, cremation was an act, an intentional act of defiling the enemy. So there are some accounts of saints where their bodies were cremated after they died because that's how they wanted, they really wanted to show it to the, those martyrs that you're, we, we hate you. 
So um, in the modern time, cremation in America has become something that is very common, very common. And to my knowledge, I, I don't know, there, there may be some really small denominations out there, but of any of the major denominations of Protestant Christianity and even the Roman Catholic Church, we are the only that stand by what the church has always taught. All of the others have figured out some way of uh, permitting. And, and the, the, the church always has economia, so there are always situations if a person is cremated in their death, like dying in an airplane accident, or um, there's a reason why that needs to happen because of disease, or all of those, the church has mercy in all of those situations. But uh, the funeral service is for the body for the person there. So we would never have a funeral service without the body there. Um, yeah, I don't know if that helps to understand. But to treat the body with great reverence. Um, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So yes to that question, yeah. And we don't do memorials either. Um, that's, that's more in the realm of economia. So yeah, the question is about memorials or trisagians for the departed. That's more in the realm of economia. That's something that, depending on the situation or depending on the circumstances, a, a priest may. And certainly for Saturday of Souls, those names, they're not... They're not, uh, by doing that act, they are not excommunicated from the church. It's just a great tragedy and harm to their, this great gift that God has given them. So they're not excommunicated from the church through that. Yeah. Yeah, the funeral, it's much more that the body is a part of the funeral. So we need a body for the funeral. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, these questions are asked very commonly among our Orthodox, and a lot of education is needed. But I, I do want to say one note. If you don't know what cremation actually looks like, what actually happens, go and find out. Because you don't get nice little ashes from bones, because bones don't burn. I won't go into more detail, but suffice it to say, it's a process that is not somehow reverent and peaceful at all. So, yeah, question. Um, so on the one hand, we, we don't cremate bodies, mm -hmm. and when we have to dispose of a calendar or Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't, I, there's actually no reconciliation needed. So that's the interesting thing. If someone were to burn icons as a uh, show of their iconoclasm, we would, we would say that's anathema. But that's what we do to reverently dispose of them. This is actually the same here in America. Do you know how to dispose of a flag? You burn it, but not you, actually. Properly, only the United States uh, military and the Boy Scouts of America, I found this out, are the two organizations that are permitted by the government to dispose of flags. And how do they do it? By burning them. In a ceremony. In a ceremony, yeah. So it's all about the mode. It's all about the mode. And so when we burn icons or Bibles or crosses or any of those things, we're doing this in a reverent way, recognizing this is a way in which it will... Uh, no harm can then come to it. Whereas if we just set an icon somewhere, someone could trample on it or whatever. So, yeah. 
other questions? Yeah. <laughs> Funny, you should ask, I don't. <laughs> but I do have some other things. <laughs> It was just sort of like a frolic, yeah, yeah. But to them, it, to, to them, it was dancing. That was the interesting thing: is that in um, going through that, they um, when we were doing even the procession into the church, they had it where I was leading them into the church, and I was just walking them into the church. And they said, "No, joyfully walk." I'm like, "Okay, I'm walking joyfully now." <laughs> But apparently that's not joyful walking, unless it's what we, we uh, Northern Europeans call a dance. A dance. Yeah. No, it was, there was a little, um, and I think this is a Ugandan thing, what we did is outside of the church, the uh, father of the bride made a, like a speech, a proclamation about you know, his, it, it was pretty traditional. It was things like, you know, here's my daughter, she is fit for marriage, unblemished, and all of this kind of thing. And so then, um, then the service could commence. Then we went into the church, up to the front for the service to begin. So, so questions about the marriage, I'll start with... So hopefully this will work. Let's what see. What language is the service in? Uh, ha about half in English and half in Luganda. If you put an L on Uganda, it becomes the name of the language. Let's see if this is going to show. Yeah, there we go. Hey. Um, so this is the inside of the church. I wish I could make it bigger. There's some of the clergy. It's very dark, unfortunately. But um, and this. Oh, there we go. Do we have sound? Oh, see. This is my technological part. I could grab a speaker and we could do this. So let me do that because some of this needs to be What? Yeah, if you want to move it back, you can. I'll, I'll just quickly grab a speaker, because there's more of the Sunday service as well. There we go.
I'll flip through just briefly some of the pictures of the reception. There we go. We can see Sean and Diane. It's joyful walking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there we go. And let's see. Oh, there we go. So this is. Here we go. That was two altar boys at the church. So this, these are photos from the wedding service. And that's Metropolitan Jonah of Uganda with the red on the right. And then two Ugandan priests and a deacon and myself and Sean and Diana. This is the cathedral in Kampala. And also he purposely stayed to be at the wedding. He saw this as evangelism. He knew that all of the Ugandans inside the church, other than Diana, are all not Orthodox. So, yeah. And that's why we did part of the service in London. That's the inside of the altar. So this is, uh, this is on the Sunday liturgy with the Metropolitan. sense the people. And so this Sunday happened to be the beginning of their school year um, because their school year in Uganda goes from February through November. So he had a blessing of the school year. Thing I wanted to show is these are photos of. I don't know if I can. There we go. Look at that. 
So that he was the, the first um, African bishop under the Patriarch of Alexandria. And his name was um, uh, Bishop Christophoros Sparta. And he and the man next to him, who was uh, Father Obadiah, the two of them in the, back in the 50s found orthodoxy and then went to Greece um, and studied orthodoxy and came back and brought it to the people. Um, if you know, uh, Maria Souza's father grew up in Sudan. He met uh, Bishop Sparta back in the 60s. So, yeah. And then... Um, the, so he was like an auxiliary bishop. He didn't have a particular place that he was assigned. Metropolitan Jonah's predecessor was the first bishop of a location, of Uganda. Um, before that, all of the bishops in Africa, at least under the Patriarch of Alexandria, were all either Cypriot or Greek or Cretan-born. Yeah, sure. I think that's pretty much what I have for photos. Any questions about that or anything else? One hundred and five, and these these can be very small. And what is, who are they under? Him. And he is metropolitan. The metropolitan of Uganda is under the Patriarch of Alexandria. Okay. So the synod of the Patriarch of Alexandria includes all of Africa, except the the full part is that Ethiopia and Eritrea have their own jurisdiction because we're we're not in communion right now. Um, but all of the the rest of the the parts that were orthodox in the north and then a lot of parts in the south that were never orthodox until the last hundred or so years. Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, um, and some of these have bishops. Rwanda has a bishop from Uganda, is their bishop. Tanzania's bishop is from Uganda. So Uganda is really kind of the, um, the heart of the central part of Africa. So, yeah. Yes? No, no. They all, I would say they all have an Orthodox presence by maybe some Greek or Lebanese business people or something like that. They might have churches, might not, but a number of the countries don't, and especially some of the Muslim countries. It's just not. This church was built in the 50s. Yeah. So. I didn't get to ask him about it, yeah. Yeah. The reception was a very, by my estimation, a very American reception. You know, big cake, cutting the cake, the dance, the, you know, offering the little speeches. Yeah, the drums weren't. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Any other? Let's see. Got about five more minutes. I know we kind of did two topics, Uganda and Judgment Day. But uh, if you have any questions or comments about any of that, yeah. Very little. It's actually, having been in the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese so long, I could see how this was very 1950s, 1960s Greek American. Uh, you could tell if you listen to the music, it's it's very much the same melody as Sacralides. I don't know if you know who that is, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so uh, very similar, very similar to what we have. But uh, in uh, Luganda, it was I was able to sing along in Luganda because 
I hadn't thought of this before, but the language was put into writing by whom? Anyone know the Ugandan history? The Brits. So it was only a spoken language. So English speakers put it into writing. So I, as an English speaker, could read the transliteration very easily. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually easier to follow along than like French or German or something like that. Yeah. Anything else? No. No, I knew we're in the liturgy where we were, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. I know it's not an opportunity that a lot of people get, but if, if you're ever able to, um, OCMC and IOCC both do trips to different parts of Africa, especially OCMC, and um, it's a great blessing to do that. So I would highly encourage that if any of you can find the time, the money is there. There are ways in which to make the trip happen. If you can find the time, it will be a great blessing. So. Thank you very much. And uh, so we will not have Theology 101 next Sunday or the Sunday after because of Forgiveness Vespers and then Sunday of Orthodoxy. And we'll start the series on sexuality the, the Sunday after that. Okay. Sure. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, let's close with a prayer. Through the prayers of the Holy Hiram Martyr, Polycarp of Smyrna, whose memory we commemorate this day, Christ our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen.